Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 427, Harroward, Back into the Mist. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jeff, Drew, and Beck for signing up already. 30,000 pounds. Let me say that again. 30,000 pounds. That's what the Gesta claims Harroward charged the Normans for the return of the warlike abbot Turald. 30,000. It's such an obviously inflated number that it almost feels like the scribe is looking directly in the camera and saying, hey, don't forget, some of this story is legendary because there is no way that this was the actual sum that Harroward was charging. When William broke the back of Ely by demanding an extortionate sum from the monks, he called for a thousand pounds of gold and silver. So if Harroward really was demanding 30 times that amount, he was either demanding that they hand over the actual moon, or the scribe of the Gesta, reportedly Leofrich the deacon, was just being really dramatic. Because there are at least three too many zeros in that ransom, and probably four. However, Hugh Candidus also tells a story of Harroward capturing Abbot Turald. And in that story, he also demands an enormous ransom for his return. So we have two sources telling us Harroward captured the abbot, and telling us that the men can have him back for, like, half the price of France. So against all odds, this may have actually happened. And if it did, it's definitely impossible that Harroward thought he was actually going to get 30,000 pounds. But it is possible that he wanted to be in a good negotiating position in order to acquire what he actually wanted. The safe return of his nephew, Seward, as well as the other hostages who had been captured by the Normans as well as a sworn promise from the abbot that he and his men would stop their hunt. And I think that's probably how it went down. Because in the same record, we're told that in exchange for the kind treatment of Abbot Turold, Seward and the other rebels were treated honorably by the Normans and released, as was Abbot Turold. We're also told that once everybody was back with their friends, Harroward was horrified to discover that rather than acting honorably and respecting the kindness that he was shown, the abbot continued to hunt down and attack the English rebels, as well as distribute the wake's properties out to Norman knights on one condition, that they also make war upon Harroward and his men. And we're told that Harroward was furious, and in revenge, he gathered his forces and burned down the town and church of Peterborough. Which definitely sounds like the kind of thing he'd do if the abbot broke an oath. But, if this is true, then it means that this is the second time that Harroward had burned down Peterborough. Now, Peterborough was close to where Harroward was encamped, so it's possible that he did attack the town. 
and both Gaimar and the Gesta claim that he did take revenge by attacking the monastery at this point in the timeline. But notably, the Chronicle doesn't report this. Instead, the Chronicle tells us that Hereward attacked Peterborough far earlier in his rebellion, back when the Danes were still with him. And considering that one version of the Chronicle is literally called the Peterborough Chronicle, well, that's a serious contradiction in the record. Now, of course, there are all kinds of reasons why an attack on Peterborough might have gone unrecorded in the Chronicle. In fact, nearly all of English history goes unrecorded in the Chronicle. Those scribes were incredibly stingy with their passages. And it's not impossible that Hereward attacked the town twice. I mean, it's not like he was above raiding wealthy English estates that were under Norman control. However, it's also just as possible that whatever sources Gaimar and the Gesta were drawing from were engaging in a little revisionism and were moving the timing of Hereward's raid on Peterborough so that it would fit a more heroic story of honorable revenge rather than a story of a rebel leader who got in over his head with the Danes. We can't know for sure. And I'm telling you this because it's part of the story and I hate how common it is for pop histories and even some academic histories to engage in preemptive editing of the material. Just report whatever's in the record and then tell people about whatever problems exist within those documents. I mean, that's how the field of history actually works. And as far as I'm concerned, you deserve to know the how as well as the what. Anyway, speaking of things that typically get edited out, I got a hell of a story for you today, and you're probably going to think it's complete fiction. But let me just say this. If you're living in the wilderness, and your survival depends on your ability to hunt and forage, well, sometimes, when you're foraging for mushrooms, you might end up getting the fun kind. According to the Gesta, we're told that once Hereward and his band were done looting Abbot Turrell's monastery, they retreated into the woods between Peterborough and Northampton. Knowing that they'd just drawn a lot of attention, they moved deep into the wilds, using hidden paths, until they found a secluded place to make camp and have dinner. Late that night, as everyone was asleep, Hereward was approached by an old man. No, old isn't right. This man was ancient. Ancient and furious. He was dressed strangely, in clothes of a style Hereward had never seen before and couldn't really describe. But they were beautiful and wondrous to behold. This ancient man looked at Hereward and scolded him. He cursed the rebel leader and told him that unless he returned the property that he'd stole from the monastery of Peterborough, he would die the following day. As the wizened stranger boomed out his warning, he held out a great key and shook it furiously in Hereward's face. And it finally clicked for Hereward who this was. It was St. Peter, God's personal bouncer. If he doesn't like you, you're not getting into the club. And Peter looked pissed. And of course he would be. In addition to being the doorman of heaven, he was also the patron saint of the monastery that Hereward had just looted. 
It was even named after him, Peterborough. The wake was filled with a depth of terror that he had never known. He'd lived with danger for most of his life, but this time he had exposed his very soul to eternal punishment. That was different. Within the hour, Harroward and his presumably baffled band were rushing through the forest, carrying with them all their fresh holy loot, intent on returning every last cup and cross to the church. And its rebel band didn't offer any resistance to this plan, possibly because they too were struck with remorse and piety, or possibly because they were on the same shit that Harroward was on and they were absorbing his bad vibes. Whatever it was, they hauled ass to Peterborough and arrived while the sun was still well under the horizon. Which was good news, because it meant that it was pretty easy for a bunch of folks consumed with religious ecstasy, or just on a bad trip, to sneak in and deposit the treasure where it would be found before retreating back to where they came from. Once it was done, they disappeared into the woods once again and got completely lost. Like, really lost. Harroward and his band were so lost that they began wandering around like they were in Mirkwood or the Blair Witch Project. And no matter what they did, they couldn't find any known landmarks or even a path. And then, right as they thought things couldn't get any worse, or right as someone said, things can't get any worse, the heavens opened up and they were caught in a tremendous storm. It was about this point that they lost all hope. And just as they were about to give up completely, a large white dog approached them. Friendly, it even nuzzled a few of them as if to say hello. And then it began walking away into the night. The gang decided that they should definitely follow this dog because he was clearly trying to help them out, which is either drug logic or the plot from an episode of Flipper. But it's a good thing that they decided to stagger after the dog because pretty soon he led them to a path through the forest. And once on the path, they found themselves surrounded by tiny creatures of burning light who clung to their weapons and refused to move. Baffled, the crew tried to shake the strange lights off and brush them off and bat them off, but nothing would work. The gang soon realized that they were being visited by will-o'-wisps who were trying to light the way for them in the gloom and, quote, greatly marveling amongst themselves, although they were stupefied, they could see their way and went on led by the wolf, end quote. Wait, by the wolf? Oh, damn, you guys, check it out. That big dog is totally a wolf. And now struck by this, they're also starting to think that this was a magical familiar sent by St. Edmund, as St. Edmund was closely linked with the appearance of wolves. And everyone was well impressed. They were also probably saying stuff like, Hey guys, have you ever like thought about the fact that the word that the French use for love is the same word we use for protection? It makes you think, you know, like for real. Eventually, the strange unearthly lights vanished and the wolf disappeared. And they found themselves on the outskirts of Stamford, right where they wanted to be. Quote, they gave thanks to God 
marveling at what had happened to them, end quote. And then, I assume, they went off in search of a nap and a shower. Now, did this happen? I don't know. It sounds absolutely bonkers, and if it isn't complete fiction, I would have to assume that psychedelics were involved somehow. But it could just be a legend that was added in to try and smooth out the fact that Hereward was linked to the looting of Peterborough, which really didn't make him sound all that heroic no matter which way you sliced it. The aftermath of this story, on the other hand, feels much more likely. We're told that three days later, Hereward got word that one of the people who had betrayed him and even arranged for his arrest was in Stamford. And a good old-fashioned assassination was exactly the kind of thing that he needed after the fall of Ely. So thank you very much, Mr. Wolf. And so, Hereward got his stuff together and prepared to make a house call. The Gesta, Gaimar, and Hugh Candidus all speak of an attack on Stamford. Though in the Gesta, we're told that it was much more of a stealth affair, with just Hereward and two companions. Whereas Gaimar and Hugh speak of an outright battle. And actually, Hugh said that it was here, at Stamford, where Abbot Turold got captured and had his ransom set at a ludicrous level. So the whole thing is very confusing, and it's hard to know exactly what happened here and what didn't. Though I'm sure that while the gang was out wandering the woods with their wolf friend, they would assure me that the true nature of reality is fractal, man. So maybe it's all true. But I think the likely truth is that there was a fair amount of conflict that occurred in the region, since it's only about 12 miles to go from Peterborough to Stamford, and they were all reasonably close to the forest of Northamptonshire. And so I wouldn't be surprised if the scribes were relating events that did occur during the rebellion in the region, but the details all began to merge together since it was all going so fast and furious. But for the sake of clarity, I'm going to stick with the Gesta here. It tells us that Hereward and a couple companions entered Stamford and realized that they had been told the truth. The turncoat was here. Unfortunately, while they were able to spot him, he also spotted them, and the man immediately made a run for it. The Wake and his comrades, with their weapons drawn, chased after him. The traitor ran through homes, through gardens, and darted around corners in an effort to lose his pursuers, but to no avail. He couldn't shake the rebels. So the Quisling broke out into a sprint and ran straight for the Great Hall, right into the middle of a feast. He was probably hoping that Hereward would be too afraid to enter a hall that was stuffed with knights, wealthy men, and all their weapons. But this was Hereward. He didn't even slow down. And he chased the traitor right through the doors. Starting to panic now, the man ran towards the back of the hall and tried to hide himself in the loo. But realizing he was about to be discovered, he did the only thing he could think of and stuffed himself headfirst into the latrine. Which is where Hereward found him. Gross. The Gesta adds that, as the man begged for mercy from the loo, quote, Hereward did not touch him there, end quote. Which, yeah, I bet he didn't. And so he left him uninjured. You know, except for all the infections and God knows what else. But then, rather than fleeing out the back himself, Hereward walked straight through the hall 
and right through all the knights and collaborators who were told were too drunk to do anything about it. It's a fun story and certainly the kind of thing that makes for an entertaining tale around the hearth fire. And my guess here is that this part of the Gesta is relating a more palatable retelling of a campaign of retribution that was waged against those who betrayed the cause. You know, one that makes the traitors and the new aristocrats look weak, drunk, and foolish, while the rebel leader looks heroic and generous rather than ruthless and vengeful. But the fact is that following the fall of Ely, the story of Harroward changes. It gets significantly more contradictory and, frankly, downright strange. We're deep in the woods on this one, and we don't even have a helpful wolf to guide us. As such, I don't think we can reliably say what we know or don't, nor when anything happened. But that doesn't mean that we're left without any insight during this critical period. I mean, we have multiple accounts telling us about rebel activities in the woods, and attacks upon Stamford, and the burning of estates, and the killing of the Normans and their collaborators. As we've spoken about before, the scribes were more concerned with conveying a truth rather than conveying an accurate record of facts. And I feel like that's no more true than it is in the story of Harroward. And while it's impossible to know what of his story is true and what isn't, the themes that exist across the records tell us quite a lot about the broad strokes of what was probably happening, and that allows us to make a best guess as to what truth the documents, with all their contradictions, are trying to tell us. And one thing I think is clear from the documents, regardless of which one you're reading, is that Harroward had lost. He was no longer leading a growing rebellion. Instead, he was leading a small band of holdouts who were refusing to give up the fight. And given their fame, it's possible that they might not have felt able to give up. I mean, consider what happened to the leaders who remained behind at Ely. And then, amidst this losing battle, something significant happens in Harroward's life. And it's something that the Gesta, Gaimar, and Ingolf's The History of Crowland all agree on. His wife, Turfrida, became a nun and cloistered herself within Crowland Abbey. So what the hell happened? Turfrida was recorded as being hard as nails. She came across the channel and joined her husband in this rebellion on purpose. And Leofrich tells us that she was up to every challenge that had befallen them at Ely. And now she was becoming a nun? Why? Well, as befitting Harroward's enigmatic life, the answer to that question is more of a riddle than anything else. The Gesta and Gaimar both claim that it was a political move. They say that there was a politically powerful and wealthy woman who was willing to intervene on Harroward's behalf. She said she would bring this conflict with William to a close and do it without him having to, you know, die or lose all his stuff. And considering that they were living in the woods and fending off huge armies drawn from the surrounding shires, that sounded like a pretty good deal. But there was a catch. First, he'd have to renounce his fight and swear fealty to William. But second, this woman wanted him as her husband. And that's tricky, obviously. I mean, he was married to Turfrida. But 
if she became a nun, that would change things. Because apparently, if your wife becomes a bride of Jesus, then you can marry someone else, and then no one has committed bigamy. Which doesn't make any sense to me, but there you have it. And so, we're told that Terfrida became a nun, and Harroward obtained a pardon, as well as a new wife who, according to the Gesta, was smoking hot. Now, Gaimar tells us that her name was Altruda, and the Gesta claims that she was the widow of Earl Dolphin. And on first glance, that makes sense. Earl Dolphin of Carlisle was close with King Malcolm of Scotland, and so his family would have probably had a lot of influence, especially since William was currently balancing a whole host of threats and might not have wanted to fight Scotland. At least not yet. So perhaps Altruda, as his influential widow, who would have also had a lot of money and land at her disposal, would have been able to use her position to get Harroward out of this mess, especially if he married her and inherited those lands. It's also not impossible that Harroward really did want a new hot wife. Sometimes people have a wandering eye. Sometimes they stray. Sometimes relationships just don't work. So it's possible that he might have actually preferred this arrangement. But this is where it gets messy. Because Earl Dolphin of Carlisle wasn't married to Altruda. He was married to Elfthrith. And before you write that off as a simple spelling mistake, I should also point out that Earl Dolphin didn't have a widow. Because Earl Dolphin was very much alive and he would continue to be so for at least another 21 years. He would actually go on to outlive Harroward, Terfrida, and William. So who exactly was the hottie that Harroward married in exchange for peace with William? And more importantly, was there even a hottie? Or even a peace plan? What was going on here? Well, while a rebel making peace with William might seem unlikely, the king had already made peace with Edric the Wild, and he made peace with Edwin and Morcar. He even made peace with Earl Waltheof. And one thing you can rely on with William is that he will do what he sees as in his best interests. And given all the various threats and problems that he was facing, he might have wanted to cut his losses with this Harroward situation. And considering that the Gesta and Ingulf both report that a peace was struck, and Gaimar alludes to at least some sort of growing peace. And also considering that we aren't reading of Harroward leading another broad rebellion, nor do we read about William ordering another huge army to hunt him down, it's possible that hostilities did come to an end. However, it is equally plausible that this is fiction intended to provide a romantic and socially acceptable end to what had been an anti-establishment tale. There is a clear political advantage to spreading a story of how even the most staunch opponents of Williams eventually came around to his rule and accepted his overlordship in peace. And our records of this peace are far from perfect. The Gesta does claim to be based on the writings of Leofric, but our earliest copy was written down long after during the Anglo-Norman times. And that's the same for Gaimar. And as for Ingulf, while he was writing close in time to these events, Ingolf was also very close to William, serving as one of his secretaries. So certainty on this will probably forever elude us. But considering that it's referenced in multiple documents, 
let's assume for a moment that there really was a peace. In that case, how was that peace bought and who arranged it? Well, that is also incredibly difficult to know because the two documents it's based upon carry clear factual errors in their accounting. So maybe someone interceded on Harroward's behalf, but as for who that was and what their relationship was, it's difficult to know. Just based on the space-time continuum, it couldn't have been the widow of Earl Dolphin of Carlisle. But beyond that, I don't know. But I do believe that Turfrida entered Crowland Abbey at this point. And the reason why I believe that is because Abbot Ingolf, who wrote the history of Crowland, became the abbot there in 1087, just 16 years after these events. And Crowland Abbey was near to Harroward's ancestral lands and also near to where he'd been operating as a rebel. So this is an account that's very close in time from someone who was governing the abbey in the area. And he says that Terfrida became a nun within his abbey. And well, I have to assume that the abbot and the monks of Crowland would have known what was happening within their own walls. Furthermore, all three documents reference Terfrida becoming a nun, and no one contradicts it. As for why she did it, well, there's all kinds of reasons why Terfrida might have become a nun. Ingolf, who's our best source for her motivations, says that she took the habit because of all the changes in the world, which suggests to me that she was motivated by politics and the rising power of William. And after several years of rebellion, it was no doubt clear to pretty much everyone that they were losing the fight, or they'd already lost it. Most of the rebel leaders had either surrendered to William, were imprisoned by William, were mutilated by William, or were now living in exile. And efforts at gaining international support had failed rather spectacularly. And after so many losses and massacres, not to mention the famine, it was also clear that they weren't able to gain enough English recruits to counter the full force of William's army. In fact, Far from recruiting, instead, we see indications that English fighters were leaving the kingdom and seeking their fortunes overseas, serving in the Varangian Guard and elsewhere. So yeah, Terfrida would have had a point here. A lot had changed since the rebellions first kicked up at Yorkshire, Durham, and Exeter, and an exit plan was probably needed. Now, Ingolf makes no mention of a second wife. Nor does he say that Turfrida joined the order as part of a bargain to obtain peace. But he also doesn't say anything that would contradict that either. And saying that she became a nun due to all the changes in the world would certainly be one way to describe what was, in essence, a peace plan. However, the fact that she didn't go back to her rich family lands of Saint-Omer, but instead stayed at Crowland Abbey, which was close to Hereward and his family lands, well, that feels like whatever the reason for her cloistering, there was still an intent for the two of them to stay close. And these two had been fighting a war together for ages. They had been in the thick of it, and their bonds had been forged in this conflict. So can you imagine how jarring it would be to be separated? Especially for Terfrida here? I mean, one minute she was living with her comrades, dodging arrows and killing Normans, and the next minute she's cloistered away with a bunch of strangers and being told she needs to spend her time praying? Even if she hated living rough and was desperate for more of a peaceful life, 
The fact that she wouldn't have anyone to talk to who would understand what she'd gone through would make her time there incredibly lonely. And that would be the same for Harroward. I mean, this wasn't a weird, distant relationship between rich kids. The two of them had fought a war together. And we're told directly how Harroward relied upon her advice and counsel, especially in emergencies, and that he needed her wisdom to help guide them through the war. That is not the stuff of a marriage of convenience. That's a partnership. And earlier records also speak of a deep flame of romance that began it all. So I find it very hard to believe that the cloistering of Terfrida would have been done lightly. And instead, I suspect that it was something that circumstances forced upon them. And if Gaimar and the Gesta are right, and that a marriage was required to obtain peace, well, even the monks praised Terfrida's steadfastness and strength of character. So maybe she was the one who made an impossible choice. After all, their only option was a near certain death in the woods. So she took the habit, and maybe that's why. But she also stayed close to Harroward at Crowland Abbey. And the Gesta also lets us know that Harroward immediately regretted what happened there. Quote, Many unfortunate things happened to him later on, because she had been very wise and good with advice in an emergency. For subsequently, as he often admitted, much happened to him which would not have done in his rise to success. End quote. And I know that Leo Fritsch hardly gave us a romantic framing there, but I think what we're reading is Rebel Monk for Harroward missed his wife and felt her absence. It also sounds like she had a strong role in the strategy of the rebellion. And I should point out that when Harroward first came back to England and started killing Normans, he was doing his typical messy stuff. He was getting into fights and winning them, but he wasn't really leading a broad resistance. It was when he came back a second time and Terfrida was with him that suddenly we see him leading a whole rebellion. And Terfrida wasn't just some random person. She was a wealthy noble of Saint-Omer and who apparently had enough juice to be able to say, no, I'm going to marry this rebel Englishman. So it's not hard to imagine that she might have played a significant role in all of this. And it's honestly weird that if there really was a peace plan, that those two getting split up was part of the deal. It's not like breakups are typical for peace plans. But if she was a proper rebel leader, and the implications in the records certainly seem to suggest that, you could imagine that they might have demanded that for any chance at peace, the dream team would have to be broken up and she would have to be put somewhere where they could be assured she'd live her life in peace. It's just a guess, but it seems plausible to me. So off she went, and then Ingolf tells us that ultimately, four years after entering the convent, Terfrida died. Chances are she was no older than in her early 40s. So what happened there? Well, there are all kinds of things that could have led to an early death for Terfrida. She'd been living hard with the rebels, and they had been up to their eyeballs with ambushes, assassinations, skirmishes, and outright battles. And we've been told in previous accounts of how Terfrida was Harroward's equal and rose to the challenge of every exigency that befell them. So it's possible that somewhere in the middle of all of that, she became sick or injured. Or maybe something happened that was disconnected from the violence. Pregnancy during this period was dangerous. It still is. 
And if any part of that process had gone poorly, well, that could have made her medically fragile. Even the stress of the rebellion, followed by the stress of sudden isolation without anyone to help her integrate or cope with the things that she experienced, could have taken a toll. Or she could have fallen ill in a completely mundane way like so many people did in this era before antibiotics and IV drips. The possibilities here are endless. Whatever it was, in 1075, she died and was buried at Crowland Monastery. As for Hereward, well, the records are contradictory and no one can agree what happened to him next. Gaimar tells us that hostilities between William and Hereward came to an end, and that Hereward was actually planning to go across the Channel and fight in William's war against Maine in 1073. But before he could, some Norman knights who were still holding a grudge tracked him to a feast that he was attending. Once he was asleep, they snuck into his chamber and attacked. Hereward leapt unarmed and naked into combat, and he killed at least eight of them before he was overwhelmed and fell dead. The Normans then cut his head off as a trophy. So that's Gaimar. The Gesta has a much more detailed account of Hereward's final days, but it also lays things on a bit thick. The Gesta says that the wake soon fell back into his fighting and feuding once Derfrida had left his side. He dueled a fellow Englishman named Latold because he didn't like his attitude. And this actually kicked off a gang fight between his bros and Latold's bros. But for honor's sake, everyone let the two leaders fight it out alone as the skirmish was raging around them. And at one point, Hereward broke his sword, and it looked like he was about to lose. But then he realized he had a backup sword on his hip. Always have a backup sword. And then he swiftly stabbed Latold in the thigh. Now normally, given that thigh is a euphemism, I would assume that this was yet another Hereward dick-stabbing event. But the Gesta goes on to claim that Latold went on to defend himself from his knees. I assume like Monty Python's Black Knight. So maybe it really was his thigh. Regardless, eventually the knight surrendered and everyone was impressed. That handled, we're told that Hereward went off to the court of King William in order to seal the peace pact and regain his family lands. Unfortunately, this absolute giant of a man named Aga insulted him in the middle of court and insisted on dueling him. Like, out of nowhere. Hereward, knowing a ringer when he saw one, tried his best to ignore him. But this guy just kept talking trash. And it was increasingly clear that no one was going to put a stop to it. So eventually, he was forced into a situation where they would have to duel. But even after swords were drawn, Hereward kept trying to de-escalate the situation, saying how pointless and stupid this all was. But Aga was having none of it, and he attacked. And sure enough, Aga was a ringer. The guy was massive, and after a great deal of fighting, he forced Hereward to surrender. And then, in the immediate aftermath of the duel, William suddenly pipes up. And he tells Hereward that as they were fighting, he'd been hearing all kinds of terrible things from his courtiers. Things like how Hereward was a traitor and deceitful and that he was unworthy of any sort of truce. And in particular, de Warren, 
Robert Mallet and Ivo Talabois insisted that Hereward could not be trusted. And William, it seemed, feigned ignorance to all of this and was just all like, wow, this is just shocking stuff. And the first I've heard of it, but you know, my hands are tied. I have to trust my advisors. It really is out of my hands. So I'm sorry, Hereward, but you know that piece we agreed on? It's off. You're going to have to be thrown in a dungeon now. And so Hereward was handed over to Robert de Horapol, and he was confined and fettered at Bedford. Hereward's remaining men, when they heard of what happened to their leader, split up and hid themselves among the public. But the story's not done. You see, Ivo Talabois decided about a year later that Hereward should actually be in his dungeon, not Robert's. And he told Robert that it was time to share. And Robert was in no position to argue. So he accepted the demand and brought Hereward to an agreed-upon meeting place in the woods, presumably somewhere between their two properties. But when he arrived, he wasn't alone. I mean, he had his guards, of course, but also hidden in the woods, watching the impending prisoner transfer, were Hereward's stalwart band. And suddenly, the rebels burst out of their hiding spots and attacked. All as Hereward was shouting that they should only attack Ivo's men over there, not Robert's. Because this had been planned all along. And at this point, Ivo was probably feeling quite vindicated in his distrust of Robert as a jailer. In short order, the rebels drove off Ivo's men and captured Robert and his guards. But Hereward, of course, ordered that his men free them. Robert then went on to speak to the king on Hereward's behalf and insisted that the wake was a good man and that the king's advisors had been deceitful and that if William would restore him to his lands, the wake would live in peace and serve him faithfully for the rest of his life, which he then did. Now, this is a very romantic tale. And as with a lot of the Gesta, I'm not convinced it's entirely true. But there might be some elements of reality in there. For example, remember that huge warrior, Aga? The one who defeated Hereward in single combat? Well, that might have been Ogier the Breton, who was a real guy, and who was the man recorded in the Doomsday Book as governing quite a lot of Hereward's lands by the 1086 census. And so you can imagine that if Hereward was at court trying to get his stuff back, Ogier may have taken exception and insisted on a duel to keep his hands on it. So maybe some of this really did happen. It's hard to say, but it certainly is a fun story. On the opposite side of the fun scale is what comes out of the Chronicle of Hyde Abbey, which simply reports that Hereward and his men were killed. Short, to the point, and not too caught up in the details. But finally, that brings us to the history of Crowland, written by Abbot Ingolf soon after these events. He tells us that Hereward, after living a life of adventure and strife, and quote, showing the most undaunted prowess as we still hear sung in our streets, and after having, with a powerful right hand, avenged his widow mother, made peace with the king, and obtained his patrimonial estate. He ended his days in peace, 
and was very recently, by his special choice, buried in our monastery by the side of his wife. It's not the most romantic version of the story, but nor is it the least. And to me, it sounds most likely to be true, in large part because I see no reason why Ingolf or the monks of Crowland would lie about Hereward specifically asking to be buried with his wife. And besides, it's nice to think of them, after all they've been through and done together, being finally reunited at the end. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying hearing all these lost stories of history and you'd like to help us keep it going, please consider signing up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>